0: Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's It's one thing to say, I want to eat
1: something else that's not meat. It's a whole nother thing to say, you need to eat something
0: else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder... The only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, get some vitamin D, breathe some fresh air, uh, and and stay happy and healthy and and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. (laughs) Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Spath. And we are excited. Today we have a special guest. Dr. Eleanor Greenberg is a Gestalt therapist and psychologist, and she has a book. And she is a specialist in borderline narcissism and schizoid personality disorders. And in today's discussion, we are just going to talk a little bit about therapy, psychology, and all these different personality traits. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to put a little disclaimer, a little bit of information out there before you guys start listening to this one. This episode is a little bit on the heavier side. There's a lot of information about personality disorders and it's with a person that is an expert in the field of personality disorders. Dr. Eleanor Greenberg in the beginning talks through the educational component of what exactly defines personality disorders of borderline, narcissism, um, schizoid, and other types of personality disorders. About halfway into the podcast, we talk about our own personal lives and our personal struggles and if we even have any of these personalities and what also we can do to make things happier for us in our lives. We touch upon food and how sometimes we use food as a way to cope with some of the things in our lives. I hope you guys take the time to listen to this entire podcast. And while it's not easy work and it wasn't even easy discussing our own family backgrounds, I know it can help some of us grow and heal and then be in a better place so that we find more happiness, raise better kids, be a better citizen in this world. So let's get right into the conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Dr. Eleanor Greenberg, if you don't mind sharing about who you are.
2: Well, thank you. One of the reasons that I'm coming on here and I write on Quora and I write for Psych Today and I have this book out is because most people are very perplexed about the character About personality disorders. When people call something a personality disorder, or when they call someone, hey, you're a narcissist, or stop being so borderline, and people don't even know what schizoid means, there's a lot of conversation now. Some of it had to do with the political climate. Some of it had to do with the internet and people becoming uh, more able to look up things on the internet and find out for themselves. So there are fewer mysteries. The general public wants to know, what is my diagnosis? Why do I have that? What's the difference between this and that? It used to be your therapist or your doctor quietly wrote a diagnosis. You, they figured you wouldn't understand it. Anyway, and nobody wanted to know it because it was in some other language. I'm going to start today with something that most people have never heard of schizoid personality disorder. Now, the reason people have never heard of this is because most people with schizoid personality disorder do not cause any difficulties to other people. They're the very quiet personality disorder who early in life, They were intruded upon, neglected, abused in some fashion, and given their temperament, they usually had a narcissistic parent who devalued them. They decided by age seven that people could be trusted, that based on their small sample of their experiences with their caregivers and whoever else was around, that they would have to take care of themselves in life, that they had to be separate from other people. They had to be entirely independent because other people were untrustworthy, unsafe, and would take what was theirs, would mistreat them, dominate them, and make them into literally their slaves.
1: So this isn't something that's necessarily genetic. It's more something that's circumstantial. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, in general, the people I see—it's—it's an interaction between their natural temperament, being somewhat sensitive, sometimes poetic, sometimes philosophic, Mm -hmm. and the uh, parenting they received. And there was a real big gap. Now, there's two ends of the spectrum, and there are some people who appear to have a genetic basis for very, very severe schizoid disorder. That's not who I'm seeing. I'm seeing people who I wouldn't know had this personality disorder until they tell me. They fake being happy, being relaxed, being normal, while inside they're often disassociated from their feelings, do not feel like their life is meaningful, and they don't feel like real. People feel very isolated and that the price of connection, if you're schizoid, is to be overwhelmed by the other person or else you dominate the situation. So you could be, if you're a high-functioning schizoid person, you want to control the interpersonal distance between you and someone else. Physical distance, emotional distance, time distance. So it's ideal for a professional who wants to go into private practice or who wants to do internet things. Because as a therapist, if I'm schizoid, and there are schizoid therapists, as there are narcissistic therapists, And one or two borderlines is that as long as I can control how long you're with me and I can terminate the session, I would be perfectly comfortable because it's predictable and I'm in control. But if I meet the same person at a party, I'd probably be the person in the corner with the drink crossing their legs, looking at everybody near the
1: exit. Because they don't have control over their interactions or the time limit.
2: Exactly. Now, why is this a problem? All the personality disorders, I trained as an object relations theorist. I mean, what am I talking about even? I'm a gestalt therapist. Why am I even talking about something that about objects? Right. It's because it's a big specialty. In most people's general psychotherapy training, We don't learn about personality disorders. And now, if we were training, we would hear about narcissism. We would be, everybody's calling everybody a narc or a narcissist or Mm a narcophile or whatever. They're making up new terms on the internet. But when I say schizoid, it is so unknown. My book, Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations The Pursuit of Love, Admiration, or Safety is available in English, but when it got bought by a German publisher, Cosell, a division of Random House, they left out. They asked me, please let us leave out schizoid from the title. Well, leave in the articles. I said, why would you want to leave it out from the title? It's going to be very important. You're, everyone's going to know about it in a couple of years, and you can be among the first. They said, because when we hear schizoid, when we hear the prefix schiz, we think schizophrenia, schizoaffective, schizotypal. We don't know what you're talking about. You're a schizo, you know, some insult like that. And it turns out it, it's really unfortunate the way that disorders get named because they get named kind of casually. Who's ever around and is naming gets right. to do it. And so schiz means schiz is a Latinized version of a
1: Greek word that means split. So when you first said schizoid, you, you've mentioned two different things and the person at a party who wants to be in the corner and that type of thing. And also then you said, um, somebody who has a hard time finding meaning in their life or what's the difference then I guess, between somebody who is schizoid versus an introvert or just depression. Like what's the difference between the personality disorder of that versus somebody who's just struggling with depression?
2: Yes, let me explain, because this is where I was going into object relations. When I was a young therapist, I really, I studied as a gestalt therapist, and we didn't at that time, I studied in the early 70s. I've been doing this for about 43 years, I'm 76, and we didn't believe in diagnosis. It was a counterbalance to psychoanalytic therapies. That was fine till I encountered something that I really, really didn't understand, which was in my first year of therapy, most of my clients did fine. I was well-trained, you know, for a beginner. And I had a PhD in psych and I had been in psych my whole life. I had these clients that I had no idea what was happening because the first part of therapy, they loved me. They thought I was warm. They thought it was wonderful. This is the best thing that ever happened. Then something would happen and they would flip on me. And they would hate me and they'd get really angry at me and they'd tell me nasty things and they'd they'd quit. And okay, this can happen once. When it happened a second time in a different way, I said, well, now it's really uncomfortable. When it happened a third time, I said, I don't care what people say about diagnosis. Something is going on. It deserves a diagnosis. I'm sure it's a pattern. I do a lot of pattern recognition. That's what I'm good at. And I can see that there's a pattern, but I can't see the pattern. And I need to look it up. I had to restudy. There were only two groups of people at that time who were talking about this, and they were all psychoanalytic, or they were from the psychoanalytic tradition. And so I started taking classes all over town in New York, and I flew to uh, Harvard for continuing. I figured they must know at Harvard. I thought, well, there's smart people at Harvard. If anyone knows, I'm going to find conferences on this at Harvard. Well, eventually I got it down to one question. I will study any type of therapy that tells me what I do in session with these people and explains how I can What makes these people different than my other clients? What should I be looking at? Where is the line between I have a nice normal client and suddenly the person hates me? Something is going on. Either I'm doing something terribly wrong or I'm getting a type of client that I was not trained for. So I found the only person that really had a good answer for me were the object relations theorists. What they said made a lot of sense to me. They said there's a group of children that before the age of three, before the age of four, they did not have their needs met by their caregivers. Sometimes it isn't the caregiver's fault. It could be nature. It could be nurture. It could be fate. But something happens. And at the time when when other children are starting to form an integrated picture, you know, the terrible twos, when kids are saying, no, 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 buy me this. No, 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 I hate you. I love you. This struggling with trying to see the same person, their mommy or their daddy, the same person that says, no, you can't have the candy that they hate at that moment is also the person they love who comforts them. So there is a split that little children have that developmentally, if they have a rather somewhat normal upbringing and their parents are somewhat normal and see them in a fairly consistent way, even when they're being bad, they start to put together um, the ability to integrate and see the same person as both good and bad, as simultaneously having both likable and disliked traits. If you can do that, it's called whole object relations, then you don't have a personality disorder. Everyone I was seeing, even though I was seeing people with different personality disorders, which I didn't know at the time, they all split. They went from seeing me as all good to all bad. And then they could split back the other direction, some of them, if I did something nice that they liked then they would start seeing me as all good, but they could never form an integrated picture. One was foreground, the other was background, and they see themselves in the same way. So there was a lot of self-hatred. We all know our own flaws. There isn't anyone listening to me or seeing me right now and me seeing you that doesn't know we have flaws, but how do we live with ourselves? We live with ourselves because we also know we have strengths. We know we have value. We may not be the biggest, the best, or anything. We don't have to be. We're us, and we can see our good and bad points. But what would happen if when we did something wrong, we couldn't remember any of our good points? We would just die of shame. That's what happens to my clients with personality disorders, guilt or shame. They, When they feel unloved or disrespected of their narcissists or unsafe if they're schizoid, intruded upon, nothing exists. Everything is very global. So if I'm a schizoid person, if I'm schizoid, all good is I feel safe with you. You are not going to intrude on me. You're predictable. You do what you say you'll do. You do not want what is mine. I can keep you at a distance. You don't suddenly rush and take up all the air in the room. I feel safe. You and I can be good together because you allow me my distance they go with someone who's geographically under undesirable in the sense that they can only see them three times a year. Well, that's perfect for them. They know they're going to spend 10 days with them three times a year in Paris or wherever. And then the rest of the time, the person can't come and get them or annoy them. And they might fall in love with someone who's married and very unavailable. However, if they don't know that they have a problem with intimacy and feeling trapped they might push for that person to leave their wife or husband. And something very weird and something very sad. This has happened to some of my clients. The minute the person is fully available, that person turns off. I had somebody who was having a long distance relationship, talking all the time. They were like buddies now, best friends. They wanted to get married. She He convinced her to fly to his town. Finally, they were going to meet and felt like they knew each other better than anyone in the world. She flew all the way there. Uh, she, she took leave from her job. She was expecting to be romanced, wined and dined. She got off the plane and he took a look at her and he said, I can't go through with this. He just shut down at that moment.
1: Because she was in his space at that point or because he couldn't was control no it?
2: Yeah, there was no impediment. He, had, he, had, he, he realized he had gotten this woman to leave her husband, come for him, be in his town. And now that she was available, he was so frightened, he couldn't even stop to explain to her what was going on. I had to explain it to her and he explained it to her in a letter. And this is why diagnosis became very important to me, because people look at what people do. And they say right now on the Internet, as you know, people are saying, oh, that's a narcissist. He dumped me. He devalued me. He told me he loved me. He loved me. He, told, he gave, gave me gifts. He said I was wonderful. But then he just started to grow cold and dump me for somebody else. Or he brought in, he cheated on me. Now, this sounds very narcissistic. But if a schizoid person does it, they're not doing it for the same reasons. A narcissist, if he cheats on you, he's gotten bored. They're not very good at doing relationships, narcissists. Really, they have very little mutual conversation. They don't know how to co-create a we out of a you and a me. So what they do is it's all me or it's all you and you can kind of feel that something's not right. Narcissists generally in intimate relationships, they want to maintain control because they feel that they cannot manage their own internal feelings. Schizoids are managing themselves inside and distancing. Narcissists are blaming you for their feelings and and getting you to change. That's their deal. And they're somewhat like Their split is I'm either special, unique, perfect, flawless, entitled to the best things in the world, entitled to flaunt the rules that, or I'm worthless garbage. So the all good from the narcissistic point of view is you are treating me special and you are listening to me. You're respecting me. This is base, your basic exhibitionist narcissist who likes to be in the spotlight, the center of admiring attention. You're listening to me. You're raptly attentive to everything I say. You respect me and you believe that I'm above you. Now, if you want to understand narcissism, imagine that there's a ladder that goes into a pot of excrement in the middle of the earth. Okay. And this ladder has it one, there's only room for one person on each rung, and the ladder goes all the way to heaven. It goes to the highest heights of anything wonderful. Now, you're on, if you're a narcissist, in your mind, you're on this ladder. There are people below you on the ladder, and the people above you. You want to get as high as you can because glory and the heavens are above you, and the pit of excrement and mud and filth is below you. So instinctively, it's not like you really see a ladder, but you act as if there's a ladder. So if you're friendly with anyone who's a narcissist, you know that everybody they know is special, unique, perfect. And everything they do, everything they put on Instagram or on Facebook shows them in a positive light. And when they describe their life, it's either perfect or if it's not perfect, it's because they're a victim. It's not their fault. You are a mean person who have taken advantage of them and put them down or been sadistic. So you see, you have a very like different split. You have the, the schizoid who is in and out. And then you have the narcissist who is above you or below you. If you try and act like you're on their level, like, like we three are equals here we don't know each other. We don't know each other's history. If I'm a narcissist, the first thing I want to do is establish dominance and the order of who do I idealize and suck up to? Who can I devalue, ignore, or put below me? Is this making sense to you? Yes. Yes. So this is my thing. And if you claim to be my equal, I'm going to be in a dominance fight with you. So you might've been at work somewhere where you found people like this where they literally couldn't bear to acknowledge your gifts unless you were so far above them that there was some benefit to them in sucking up to you. Whereas my borderline clients, they are all about love. If you want to know what solves the problem, if this the solution to the schizoid problem is safe interpersonal contact that they have control over, okay? The solution to the narcissist's problem is status and prestige and being the best. The solution to this borderline's problem that they think will make everything better is to find my true love. Now, when you read on the Internet about soulmates and twin flames and things, you're probably in borderline land (laughs) because everything is about love. And it's not just a romantic love. But we're talking, remember, I said back things that happened before the age of four. A little kid before the age of three is bonded with their mother or primary caretaker. There's only room for one other person. And they need that person to be both their protective adult and their soother. And to see themselves as lovable through that person's eyes. So my borderline clients are looking for a romantic lover, sex object slash protective parent who will do everything to love them and also do all the hard adult things. So we have it, so it's really very different. Based on my definition, we know we're in personality disorder land, according to the object relations therapists, who say that if you can only have one of these either-or views of people, either they're the best or the worst, either they're safe or they're not safe, very global, very black and white, very split, then you're in personality disorder land. And then it becomes a matter of differential diagnosis. How do we know? which one well the three main ones according to james f masterson a personality disorder theorist he developed object relations developmental approach that he called the masterson approach it's not only could they give me an answer Like, what's a personality disorder and what makes them not have a personality disorder? If you don't have, if you have whole object relations, you don't have a personality disorder. You can be an obnoxious human being. You can do all kinds of weird things to people, but you don't qualify for a personality disorder. And Masterson taught three different therapies and approaches to each of these three things and their subsets.
1: I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of the, the diagnosis is so important. And I think that today people are wanting to label things so quickly that often maybe we're labeling ourselves or we're labeling others that we're in relationships with when there isn't a true diagnosis there. It's just a common word that we're using. My biggest question is I'm not somebody who could diagnose anybody, right? I'm not a professional. And yet I have people in my life who you have difficult relationships with. How am I able to sift through that they're not going to get a diagnosis, I guess, like how do I protect myself in that way versus just kind of sort through those relationships of people you deal with, um, not knowing really where they stand, I guess. Well, um, I'm going to give you the easy ways. How's that? Yes, please. Here's here's something that I discovered
2: many years ago in my mid-20s when I was dating. Now, most of us go through a gothic novel romance period, whether it's Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre, anybody to women, you know? And um, in it, there's always this mysterious hero who has both a nasty and a good side, who's also frightening, but he's terribly attractive and mysterious. And what I learned in my 20s is the, mis- the mysterious stranger is mentally ill. Why do I say that? All you have to do is um, if somebody, if you're with someone and they say something that's strikingly odd to you, like shockingly odd, so odd that you don't believe they're serious, you think they're joking. Like they make fun of the way someone looks on the street loud enough to be overheard. And you're going shh. And you're going, they really can't mean that. They must be fooling around. No, they do mean it. Take them seriously. It's odd and it strikes you as unpleasant, right? Or you're eating dinner. You're going for a date with someone to eat dinner and they insist on going to a steak restaurant, but you're a vegetarian, or they insist you're with food, they insist on being vegetarian, where you're a carnivore. And they just really dismiss whatever it is you say that you believe about food. Now, you expect a little pushback the way I got on diagnosis when I started diagnosing people or talking about it, but you might give them a pass once and say, oh, they just don't know. Once I explain my point of view to them, they'll take it seriously. Or you
1: make excuses for them.
2: That's right. So all you have to do is notice, start paying attention. If you get three odd and unpleasants from them, you don't have to know the diagnosis. You just know the combination of this is really odd. I find what they say unpleasant and shocking. Is sufficient. You don't have to know whether it's unpleasant and shocking because they're trying to push you away to get into personal distance in their schizoid, whether it's unpleasant and shocking because they're borderline and they feel like you just abandoned them and they're being mean. You don't have to know why. You don't have to know if they're a narcissist and they can't imagine that any other way of relating to food that's different than theirs could possibly be equally valid. Right. So this is one way. You look, you pay a lot of attention to your own gut feelings. And as soon as you register, what would be something? Can you you have any memories of anyone saying something that that struck you
1: as odd and unpleasant, but you kind of like talked yourself out of? I, I dated a guy in college that I maybe it's not an actual diagnosis, but like I consider it a, you know, narcissism, like he would kind of like pinch my stomach and say, like, you know, you could do something about that if you if you wanted to, you know, or kind of um Every, everything that we did had to be a revolve around him. And it was all about like his happiness and his schedule and his lifestyle and his, you know, like those are all things. But again, I don't know if that's a. that's close enough.
2: Yeah. You're going in the narcissistic direction. We may not have enough for a diagnosis, but we know he tends to be. What do we know from this? We know that he will say unpleasant, devaluing, shocking things to try and motivate you to do what? What was he trying to do with that? To lose weight. And he was also putting you in your place a bit, right? Was, Was that an empathic statement? One of the diagnoses for narcissism is to look for a lack of emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy is when you stop and you think and you say, okay, what if I tell her, if I pinch her stomach and tell her she could stand to lose a little weight? Is she likely to find this pleasant or unpleasant? Right. You know, you can think it through and say, no, it's unpleasant. Will that motivate her? Well, would it motivate? You know, so it's a thoughtful thing. But it, it, but my gut, when when you when you described it, I got a gut feeling of unpleasantness and surprise, and oh my god, I can't believe he said that to her. What was your feeling at the moment when he said it to you? Oh, it's devastating. Yeah. That's right. So that's one. It's both odd and it's unpleasant. Right. So three of those, I'm saying, is sufficient to to say that this is not an accident and that the person's always going to be odd and unpleasant with you, and it's not going to get better on its own because this yes. this person thinks it's okay.
1: Let me ask you this, and this kind of slightly changes the subject. But you mentioned empathy, and this is my this is the basic reason that I wanted to talk to you in a way because. I think we look like I'm looking at myself now and saying, like, do I exhibit any of these behaviors? Is this something I need to be aware of? Like, is there something going on that I don't know about? I feel like I'm somebody who's not very empathetic towards other people in and, and, and maybe I say that too lightly. Right. I have a friend who lost a child and it's devastating. I cried for her and with her and I think about it. And so I. that's a situation where I have extreme empathy and I'm just devastated for that situation. But there's other times in people's lives where, you know, I work in a corporate environment and somebody calls out sick. I'm like, yeah, they're not sick, whatever. They're just lazy. Or, you know, is this, I, somebody may end up losing their job because they call out sick too much. And they're, they're devastated in that moment. But in my head, it's like, well, it's your own fault. Like, sorry about it. Like, I mean, is that, where's the line, I guess, for me as a person of is that a toxic trait that I need to look at myself with and work to overcome to have more empathy towards people? Or is it, you know, I'm, is it a history? I don't know. Like, where does that fall for myself, I guess?
2: Well, first of all, we, we have to look at genetic inheritance. Um, there's a lot of traits that have a very, very, very strong genetic component. And for example, people with musical ability come from musical families where they study music, they're exposed to music, but there's a natural musical talent. You look at people with natural athletic talent, they, they learn to catch the ball faster than anybody else. I think that empathy is another one of those traits that I have seen families that were low empathy families and it ran in the family. They didn't have a disorder but they were they were handicapped when it came to emotional empathy. Here's the pros and cons. It's better if you're going to be a soldier to have a bit less empathy. If you're in the complaint department of Macy's, I, I had a narcissistic boyfriend in college, and he got a, a job in the complaint department. He was such a nasty guy. He got a job in the complaint department of, I think it was Gimbel's. There was still a gimbal's in those days. It wasn't Macy's. And I just pictured him enjoying saying no to their complaints. My mother's side of the family were high in generosity and in emotional empathy, but they were also crazy and they were high in neuroticism. So I had an aunt with OCD, histrionic personality disorder, and she had a touch of narcissism. Her brother had some OCD. Everybody in that family, and that's my mother's side, and my cousins were all like kooky, but most of us got the generous gene and the sense of humor genes. In your family, the first thing I would ask is, are you the only person who's low on emotional empathy? Are there your aunts and uncles when you get to a family gathering? Do you hear things like, oh, this boy was hanging onto a bus on his roller skates, and he fell off and fell under the wheels of the bus, and your uncle goes, it served him right?
1: I don't don't think I have like uncles or things that I know my I have a lot of history of a, you know, like toxic personality I with my father. And I think, you know, I wonder if he is a narcissist diagnosed, like should be diagnosed as a narcissist, which is, I think why I dated the guy in college who was that way. And like, I know I spent a lot of my, I was a theater major in college and my senior theater thesis was like, how has my relationship with my father affected my relationships with men? And like, that was what I wrote a one woman show about, you know, in college, just to try to, pull that out. And obviously it's, it's the artsy way of trying to manage through that relationship when people who do the arts think that that's somehow therapy, but it's not, it's just us working through those things, uh, outwardly on stage. And so I, I'm sure he would feel that way.
2: Now, what was, what are his characteristics that, um, in the way that he treated you, now, I, I say empathy teaches empathy. Right. If we're around people. We, we we Children are programmed to learn. They learn the language that their parents speak. We eat the food that we're served within boundaries. We learn to like it. We learn to have the value system of our culture, of the people around us. Some of us are very born with a very strong internal sense of right and wrong. Because I've had people born into families. I had one client who was schizoid but he he shouldn't have had any moral code. I mean, he should have been the mm-hmm. nastiest, most broken person in the world. Really. His yeah. mother was like the nastiest borderline woman and told him that how she never wanted him. And he was just a pain. And his father was a workaholic narcissist who broke every promise he ever made to him. I mean, this guy should be nothing. Yet he was born knowing right from wrong, because most of us, We really do not have, you know, I was fortunate. I thought my parents' nervous system evened out in me. I wasn't as neurotic as my mother's family. And I wasn't as unfeeling as my father, who psychopaths are not. Right.
1: To to get on your father's good side, what was required? You had, so if he was home, we needed to be home, right? Like we needed to, he needed to be the center of attention, and I think that showed up in his career. He was a pastor. And in a lot of ways, the denom- the church worshipped him as much as they worshipped God. Like he loved that spot of saving people, of, you know, if if we were home, we needed to be there. If all of a sudden guests showed up for dinner, like we needed to go sit by him to show that there was this positive relationship and that he was, he was there. I think when we got older and started being more involved in extracurricular activities, I think that was harder for him to handle the fact that we were out of the house. And I think my, the complete opposite of that, my over nurturing mother kind of forced that at some point to say, to give us a chance to be out of the house and to do those things. And then inevitably I think that moment of this is condensing a lot, lot, you know, my entire childhood in about three sentences, but my brother and I got to a point where we were out of the house more, we were doing things. And I think there was this subconscious element of like, we didn't need him anymore. And then he found somebody else who did need him in a sense and started another family, um, you know, had an affair with somebody who was very emotionally damaged, got married, had a family, had more kids, like essentially put himself, okay, this family doesn't need me to be the center of their family anymore. So I need to find some other situation where I can save them and kind of start that process over again, I guess. And that's an entire lifetime into a few sentences, but I think that's kind of what I've put together in my way of coping with it throughout my life.
2: So when you gave that example from someone at work calling in and getting fired because they were sick too many times, would your father, what would your father have said?
1: Oh yeah. Same thing. Like that they're just lazy.
2: And when you um, identified with his views, were your mother's views different than that? What would your mother have said?
1: She was usually more empathetic or forgiving for people in general. I think, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I could pinpoint that exactly.
2: At any point, did you find your father harsh or did you agree with his value system?
1: I mean, I think I didn't realize there was anything wrong with that until I got older, I, I suppose. Like growing up, you know, we were all waiting in the car and he was extremely harsh to my mother who was late. Like we were going to go somewhere and she's holding us up and she's going to be late. And I've certainly in that moment, I'm sitting in the car agreeing with him as a child. Like, and now, I mean, one of the most highest qualities that I hold about myself is that I'm a punctual person and I value things like being on time to be extremely important and respectful. And maybe it's because he was so disrespectful to people who were late when I was growing up. Like, I think I have this innate fear that like, I am my father and that's this like terrifying thing for me in a lot of ways. (laughs) Like, am I that person to my cat? Like, how do I not be that person for my own kids? Well,
2: I'll give you something. If, you, if people have whole object relations and you can maintain your sense of person as having both liked and good qualities, liked and disliked, you also have object constancy. Now, object constancy is a really important concept. So it'll be important to the listeners as well, because it's a lack of object constancy is one of the main reasons for abuse during fights. It's the best predictor I know of abuse. And what happens is, is that in the middle of a fight or a disagreement, when somebody is feeling frustrated or hurt or disappointed or angry with another person's behavior, like you're sitting in the car and your mother is not there. If you have object constancy, you don't hate your mother at that moment. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like, oh, that's. She's always so bad because you remember also the wonderful nurturing things she's done. Like She was able to help you get out away from your father and have some more, uh, have your own life instead of just stay home and be there available to him all the time. If you have object constancy, your kids will probably be pretty fine because you won't be switching off on them and suddenly hating them for being late. Right for doing the wrong thing. So you have to look into your own heart that when one of your friends, you're somebody who you have a good relationship with, uh, maybe you and Judy, maybe you and someone else, what happens when you have a disagreement? Most of us have lost object constancy at some point. I'm married for 43 years. I will tell you I've lost it. Um, The object relations theorists Some of them are really hard line. You either have object constancy and all object relations or you don't. I noticed that that wasn't true of me. So I really trust when you look into your own heart, you know what what you see. And I realized that I got myself to object constancy, that there would be a point in fighting. I don't lose it very easily, but if a fight went on a long time or it went to some place that was painful for me, that was like really a boundary to crossing, then I could lose object constancy. I could be ready to be out of there in a second, okay? If you're the clingy type and you have nowhere to go, you have the widow fantasy when you lose object constancy. I had these clients and they came to me and they said, I hate my husband, but I really am too weak to leave him. I can't divorce Mm -hmm. him. So I find myself fantasizing I'm at the gravesite. And what a shame. He's dead. And then the next thing, I'm wearing a long black veil because they can't see how happy I am under the veil. They think I'm crying. I'm really laughing. And everyone's comforting me. And they're telling me oh, don't worry, you will be okay. And I'm thinking, thank God he's gone. Now I get the insurance. I don't have to move. I don't have to divorce him. That is a loss of object constancy too. You know, this is a person she married and loved and in a better mood, she's happy to see him. So you can kind of see yourself if you don't have object constancy. What I found is it was fine to lose object constancy and move on when I was young because it was always another guy. Then I realized as I hit my 20s and I was in one of those fights where I'm thinking I'm out of here. This is it. I lost it. I said, wait a second, Greenberg. You're going to you've been through this before. You're in another room. You're crying your eyes out. You're only going to make up with this guy. If you go with someone else, it's only going to happen with somebody else. Why don't you run through it in your brain this whole fight? see what it's about, see if you can solve it, and that you don't have to like go through this whole thing. And after two or three days of misery, you're going to be back together anyway. So maybe you could just skip the fight. This seemed like a very good idea. So I said, okay, how do I do this? Well, I hate him. So how do I not hate him? Well, he's done lots of good things for me. And he's very cute. And so I started to put together a visual. I put together a whole visual tape of cute moments with him. And so I got back my object constancy. Now your problem of lack of empathy, if it leads to a lack of object constancy, if you have both these things, then your children are going to have a rough time with you. You're going to be a tough mommy, and you may not want to be. You may not want to have them have to deal with feeling like if they displease mommy, then mommy won't love them anymore then it becomes, okay, it's worth my while. I can do this. Like, uh, Do I want to be more empathic?
1: And maybe that's the shift. Like I feel like from my family standpoint, from people I love and care about in my life, it's easy for me to see both sides, the good and the bad, and and to make sure that my children feel loved and to make sure they have those things. I think where I struggle with it is people that I don't have that deeper connection with or I don't have as a close person in my life, it's so much easier for me to write that off because you don't know the good and the bad about them entirely. You only know these simple actions or these things that I guess that annoy you. And so maybe it's, it's so much easier for me to dismiss that person I don't know as well, which I also don't think is a very kind thing to do. But is that a boundary setting or is that something that is not kind well, it, or an empathetic? Well,
2: I look at it differently because it all depends on your spiritual beliefs and what you see, and whether you really believe that we're all separate people Mm -hmm. and that we really can divorce ourselves from other people's situation. But I do believe that uh, the way to go is to be nice to everybody. I can't always succeed, but I believe that's the way to go. I believe that everybody will be much happier. If we can get, if not that we forgive them for bad behavior, I'm not suggesting people get a pass, right? There are consequences, but in our head, we can be compassionate and understanding because I truthfully have so many instances of remembering when I was younger and looking back now, I was a perfect idiot and I did many things just because I was uncomfortable or I was posing or I didn't know. Better. I didn't really know how to handle situations. I was young. And I think a lot of people don't know a better way of handling things. So we do go back to what you said. We fall back on what we learned at home. If it's at all a decent fit for our personality and yours seem to be a good fit, I think it was Eric Erickson who talked about the different stages of our development and that when we go through a certain stage in adolescence, some of us get very alienated because the way that our parents raise us isn't in accord with our nature. So we feel alienated. We don't know who we are or what to be. And we go on a search for identity. But for some of us, the way our parents raised us, with whatever biases they have, with other good and bad traits, it's sufficiently close. Like we're born genetically similar enough to them that we can adopt it pretty seamlessly. And it's only if we run into trouble in the world or we run into other points of view like you are, it's when, that's when we start to question, mm-hmm. as adults... Some people never question, they just continue on the path because there's a sufficiently good fit between them and their parents' path that they never have to make a decision. And their life looks very smooth. They, they live a life somewhat similar. But some of us, our nature, it's not a good fit for. Mm -hmm. and I have conflicting sides to my nature. Do you have any conflicting sides to your nature? Most of us do. We would never have an inner conflict if we didn't have other parts of us. Like, have you ever gone on a diet or anything where you tried to give up something and you didn't want to give it up? Well, how is that possible for only one person? As I got older, I thought I would get more and more integrated. Isn't that what they tell us? You know, you get more evolved and you become this one solid person. Instead, I start finding all these different parts that I'm the I call myself the MC for the show. In me, I can't do yours because I have two parts of me. I've got the assassin over here. He could happily say those people can go swing. But over here, his counterbalance is Mother Teresa. She wants to save the lepers, the world, be nice to everybody. And there's this kid Pollyanna, a book about a little girl who was just so nice that she could cure all the mean people in town, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've got the assassin. I've got some brute over here. And then I've got Pollyanna, and this one and, and a few other parts of me. So they get into arguments about whether it's okay. You're in one right now a bit. Is it okay for me to be unempathic to people who I don't know well? So who's right. arguing about it? I would say what side of you is saying part of you raised by your father is yeah. perfectly fine with that, right? Yeah. That's, your, that's your impulse. So how would you describe the counterforce right now that even
1: makes you ask that question? I think it is the other side. And I don't know if it's necessarily my mother personified, but it is more this, I am a mother. It's the motherly person, the person who appreciates empathy from others, uh, somebody who needs support and care from people that I love. And so then I realize that other people need that as well. And that other balance, but then the other side, that side that is much more cutthroat wall street, like, you know, that successful driven, you get what you deserve, you work hard and that's why you're successful versus this, like, you know, big teddy bear fuzzy, like come and I want to hug somebody who's hurt. And there's those two sides definitely conflict. So how do you resolve it? I struggle with that internally even with how I measure success in my own life because I'm I want to and I feel like the part of me measures success in accomplishments, in what you do in time, how hard you work and and success that way. but then there's also this big part of me that just feels too overwhelmed by that right Or I put all these list of demands I have this to-do list and checking things off a to-do list is how I measure success in a lot of ways whether that's in my job, in my personal life, in this world of, you know, social media, check, think, put a YouTube video accomplishment, do this accomplishment, put out a podcast accomplishment. Like these are all things that make me successful, but there's also this part of me that sometimes feels overwhelmed by just looking at that list. I don't even know where to start. And you just want to get under the covers and forget about it and eat ice cream in bed. And like, there's those two parts of me that I have a hard time giving myself the opportunity to feel successful and accomplishment If I haven't actually checked off enough things off of this list, if that makes sense.
2: Okay. So I'm going to give you a different idea, a whole other way of approaching it that bypasses this and that anybody can use. I realized early on, because I'm a pattern maker, that I actually had a recipe for happiness and that the content could change, but it was like a pie chart. So I actually made a pie chart, which I'll invite you to do. And when you start to get unhappy or two in one direction or another, here's what my my pie chart looks like. I need a new project all the time, something I'm working on that I don't know very well that's exciting. Like today, I came on this. I've never been on a nutritional show before. I didn't know how we're how we going to work personality disorders and nutrition in together, okay? So part of my recipe is I have to look forward to something as a new thing. Second, I'm usually teaching something that I already know super well, but I feel sort of obligated to teach. Because it's something that people should know. So I'm teaching object relations here, personality disorders. Then I need social. I like people. I like to go on people adventures. I had no idea that there would even be two of you. I thought our adventure, right? And then there's a new adventure. There's actually three of us here. So part of me is social adventures. I'm an extrovert, not an introvert, which means that I get energy from invigorating contacts with other people, but I'm not so extroverted. I need a lot of time alone to read and to write. So I'm reading and writing. I need a creative outlet. The creative outlet could change. When I was mad at my husband, I was writing bad country and Western songs a long time ago. (laughs) I, I wrote the very famous, no one's ever heard it, but it's very famous in my mind. I'd rather be a sardine than a married woman. That was the name of my country and western song, and now I write on Quora and I used to do handcrafts. So my creative side—you could fill in as you can see with the creative side of me. My fill in the blank, like you have an accomplishment side. You feel happy when you check off these accomplishments. So your pie chart would have to include checkoffs, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yes. Because that's just real for you. What are some other things that would be in your pie chart that have to be in, that if you have all these things in place, that different things can fill it. You could be checking off different types of things. What else makes you
1: feel good? Keeps you stable? Getting adequate sleep has to be a part of that. And I think that influences so much about um, everything it can if if that part of my pie chart not getting adequate sleep gets too small it negatively impacts all the rest of those things so what else is on your pie chart quality time with my children and my husband um making sure that i i feel like i have to put give them my full attention um and and ensure that i'm doing that because then i think that if i can give them that full attention then that validates maybe that is me validating me as a mother or like being able to just like give them quality time. It validates me as, as a wife and a mother.
2: Okay. So validation is on your pie chart. Yes. Okay. You need validation. So we're going to, you know, what I'm suggesting is radical honesty and self-acceptance. Now, whatever we find we need, that's what we need. Never mind if we decide we want to change it later or you know, we have envy, someone else needs something different than us. Yeah. So what are some other things that for you to be happy, you have to have in your life? What else would be in your pie chart?
1: I don't I don't that's so hard. It's like hard because I don't think about it often. And it would be I'd have to really sit and then write some more things down and think about it. See, I think
2: what's happened with you is you, you've gotten on the wrong horse. Okay. You, you left the horse you were riding as a little kid, which we were all riding, which is the happiness horse. We yes. want to feel loved. We want to be playing with an interesting toy. We want to have some friends. We want mommy and daddy to love us and hug us. That's the happiness chart. and. and you're on the accomplishment chart. Mm-hmm. You're you're on the chart that, that leaves you with the question, am I a good person? Right. Am I living my life right? Absolutely. So, some, so kids don't ask that question, am I living my life right? Something happens that gets them off paying attention to what they're doing and being in the flow of the moment to mm-hmm. questioning themselves. Right. So that su- suggests that at some point you've got – a little bit off um, on the sidetrack of having to prove yourself. Yeah. who yourself, let alone to anybody else. Yes. Because you're proving yourself, you're validating. What, what you're saying is sometimes you don't really want to give them that much attention. But in your mind, you have a standard for your behavior. And to be a good mother, mm. you have to give them some undivided attention. So you have to write that in. But not because it makes you it's not first order happiness. Like you kid, you pick up a, uh, a toy. It's first order
1: happiness. Hmm. You're not, ta- you're not happy because the toy will lead to something. Right. That makes sense. I see that about myself a lot. I think that's why I, you know, I work full-time. My husband's a stay at home dad. It's why I need, it was something that we agreed early on. Like I needed to be able to continue to work. And I think there is that because I needed to feel that sense of accomplishment. I think in a lot of ways, um not to say that you can't work for other reasons but that was part of the reason why just from a personality standpoint why it worked better for me to keep working and for my husband to be the stay-at-home parent because those were not he's those that was not a quality that was necessary for him to feel value in his own life you know he he can find that sense of accomplishment in other ways that weren't working a full-time job
2: now if we switch now to Judy Judy because you haven't had a chance to talk or and in- you could interrupt I'm from New York, we interrupt everybody. Same. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is it that you're thinking as we go as Laura and I talk about switching from diagnoses to happiness as our focus and what what reality makes us happy? What what's going on with you?
0: Yeah, just to give you a little bit of background of me, I studied psychology as my main um degree. For a long time. And then I struggled with an eating disorder and I went into therapy for that. So I'm very, very exposed to a lot of this. And I always have a struggle because, from what I learned in school, you know, there's these kind of rules and guides and guards that allow us to say, okay, this is what a diagnosis is or this is what it looks like. And then when I had my own eating disorder and I wanted the therapist to understand where I'm coming from, it was a lot of the, and it might have been the specific therapist, but it was very, check off the box, right? Oh, okay. So you purge X amount of times you do this, therefore you are this now. And I knew in me that it was more than that. And so that's when I started questioning all of psychology, right? I love social psychology. Um, I also am like a extrovert. And then I think some of my eating disorder made me a little bit more introverted too, but I love a lot of it. I love how there's these theories and it makes a lot of sense, but then I struggled when it was my own disease, that now they're boxing me in a way that I didn't think made sense. And so a lot of my belief system of psychology just got really shattered. And um, and so when you're talking about uh, narcissism and schizoid, it's hard for me to understand, like at what point when a kid is seven, like how much trauma or how much whatever did they receive that then it affects them. everything you were talking about, I was thinking of, okay, so how does that reflect on me? So there are times when I fight with my husband and all I think about is all the bad things. And so I'm like, okay, so do I not have that object? But then when my anger dissipates, I remember all that he's good. And then I kind of get hard on myself. I I didn't throw kindness at him. And um, in that moment, I just thought of the bad, or if I had a fight with someone else and and then we walked away in that moment of anger. All I remember is like that last moment of anger with them. And then I forget all the good until time has passed. So then I was just thinking, okay, so in this kind of definition, did I lose my definition of that object? Um, I forgot what you called it, object.
2: constancy, whole yes. object relations. Yes, you did. And, and like I say, like a lot of fairly normal people do. That's where I differed with the hardcore object relations people. And I look at how much does it take for us to lose it? How far do we take it when we lose it? I had a client that took a baseball bat to her husband's car. Okay, that's losing. Okay, right. Uh, Sitting there thinking, oh, I don't love him anymore. And then 20 minutes later, you know, remembering his good part, you could see there's a big difference between she went out and she was convinced he was cheating on her at the bar and she went and found him. And before she went out, she broke with a baseball bat what i noticed if you don't mind me being personal and you yeah. can always put personal things out is that you went from blaming him to blaming you
0: yeah oh yeah i totally Somebody
2: both the bad one so that shows you that splitting that's a lack of object constancy and it just depends on who is being blamed but what what you're when you have a split, there's a good side and a bad side, and the bad side is assigned to somebody, and the good side is assigned to somebody. So you what you're talking about is you switch from you having the good side assigned to you and the bad side assigned to him in the fight to then later on you feel oh I overreacted now so then the bad side comes I'm wrong for overreacting he is a wonderful person so you have just split in the other direction but we're still splitting now. I personally would rather split less and have it be much less frequent and find it much easier and not have to blame anyone. Not because that comes easy to me, not because I'm a wonderful person, but I think it's more logical because um, we can find bad things about everybody. We can, including ourselves, if we're not idiots, if we're not totally lying to ourselves, I can, think of dozens of bad things about me. I can think of quite a few good ones as well, thank God. And I just think it's a happier way to live if we're not feeling um someone's always at fault, right? Or or I need to protect them from me or I need to protect me from them.
0: And and I fully agree with that. So um I think one of my parents was very like that. It was very black and white thinking and all my past relationships it was definitely like that. And now with my husband now and I really think we're kind of made for each other, but he doesn't like arguing. So, so we then talk like grownups through our opinions of what we're disagreeing. And so it's just, I've never experienced this. So I remember when we were first dating, I was always waiting for the next, um, the shoe to drop, right? This is so good. We're not really arguing. We share, it's not like we don't communicate because we absolutely share everything, but I'm just waiting for the next fight, the next big thing to happen, because I kind of grew up in that of, you know, right versus wrong, bad versus good. And with my husband, it's just we just talk through it and and I thought it wasn't normal. But now that I don't know, we've been married for almost 10 years now, I realize this is a healthy relationship. But I think in hard moments, I probably do resort back to that good versus bad because I absolutely feel bad later. And I actually think my dad probably had that tendency where he would argue with my mom, he would leave to cool off, and he was the one that was mad. But that, or maybe they were both mad, but then my dad would come back with groceries and say, I'm going to be cooking. And it was just what you just left so mad. So
2: what that is, what you're seeing is splitting and splitting can be undone very quickly. Okay. Normal, normal dislike. If we're really like not splitting, you grow to dislike someone. You don't suddenly love them again. You, you know, things are more stable. This sure. is this turn on a thing. What you see from your father is called a reparative gesture. Okay. My clients who have narcissistic personality disorder, um, they get embarrassed. People think they don't get embarrassed, but they do. I've had a lot of exhibitionist clients who were real screamers. And underneath it all, they had sweet sides. You know, we're talking about human beings here with their own personality. But he used to, um, he was the type that would embarrass the waitress. Have you ever been out with somebody and they scream at the waiter or the waitress? They don't like where the table is. They're very difficult to please and they're easily insulted. So my client had a favorite restaurant, Billy's near his house and he went there all the time. It was really important to him. And he brought someone from work there. And you can, Laura, relate to this. He wanted to impress this person. He had a business deal going. And he knew that he was well-known at this restaurant. So he, he expected to be treated like he usually is, which is like he's golden, like he's the owner of the restaurant, you know. And instead, they were very rushed that day. And I don't know what was going on with the host, but they seated him in a bed table near the kitchen. And my client got so angry that he lost track of the fact that he wanted to impress this other guy. And he just became hot. He just became insulted. And he starts screaming at the host that you can't do this to me, that I won't put up with this kind of treatment. He insisted they leave and they go to a different restaurant, which wasn't a really good impression on his business person. And then he's, he's afterwards, he's thinking about it and he's in therapy and he's saying, oh, my God, what did I do? That's my favorite restaurant. I just screwed myself. It doesn't hurt them. They have plenty of people to eat there. It hurts me. I don't get to eat there again. So he went out and bought an over-the-top Tiffany's cufflink gift for the host. Now, when you were the narcissist, they usually have a lot of trouble saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, because they only have those two boxes. I'm flawless or I'm worthless garbage. So he doesn't want to say the I'm sorry I was wrong because that touches off his own pain and feeling worthless and blaming, like, why did I fight with my husband? He wasn't so bad. So instead, they do something nice for you. The reparative gesture could be anything. So, I tell people that if they're married to a narcissist and you get a reparative gesture instead of an apology, just accept the gesture. You will also, they will not process with you anything that went on before. So, when you want to have an explanation, why do you get so mad at me when I earlier on, there's no processing, you'll just get into another fight. So, I thought that was interesting. So, your father would make food as a reparative gesture to his family after making a fuss
0: yeah although my mom would complain about things but yeah I never I don't know if my dad was a narcissist I never yeah I guess
2: well we don't know enough about him but we do know that he 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 would be angry and then he'd have a reparative gesture would he say I'm sorry I overreacted or would he just do the cooking
0: I think he would say sorry but just to make it fair um the fights would often start with my mom just complaining. And then eventually she'll she'll just be venting up for like 30 minutes to herself. And then you could just hear, feel the ambiance in the house is like, it's, you know, kind of awkward. And then eventually he would scream maybe that he wasn't just patient through the end. I don't know. I don't, I was so young, so I'm not really sure, but, and then I just remember they would be like screaming at each other and then he would eventually go out, but it would, it had escalated enough where we were scared, like, what is he doing? Is he going to get in an accident? But then he'll come back within, like, I don't know, an hour. And there was only a few times it happened, but I remember that distinctly. And I just remember feeling so puzzled, like, what? He went to go get groceries and make food? Like, that is so odd. But I do remember him apologizing. I don't remember him not doing that. I think if okay. anything, my mom would have a hard time apologizing. But.
2: So so really, your mom was the instigator there, and she started this dance going, and it was like a family dance. Once she started going that way, he would eventually reach a break. She would keep going till he reached the breaking point. Yes. If, would she ever stop on her own and say, huh, that's enough venting. I've, I'm finished <laughs> venting. Uh, Sorry. Maybe if
0: someone else was there. Let's say my aunt was there, and my aunt talked there. Through- so she, that's how she copes, I guess, is she just needs to vent outwardly, but she's not talking to anyone directly, you know, so she would just be, you know, saying things under her breath kind of thing. I don't know. So, okay.
2: So what we have is an opportunity as kids. We've, as I said before, especially if it's a, if it's a followable, if our nervous system can all do it and both your nervous systems could do it, you both could follow the family style. Then we become adults and we get to see how this actually works in the world. We get exposed to other families. Like you got exposed to this, your husband's style and it was better. It was, it was less dramatic. It was more relaxed. It, you didn't have those blowups. But we don't know about these possibilities until we're exposed to them. Right. We, we, most of us think everybody pretty much should have the same values as our family if we we're in accord with the family values. And they don't think about that much. So we have an opportunity as an adult once we start getting exposed to other ways as adults we can take our happiness and our moral code in our own hands. And that's what my happiness pie chart is about and I also have my clients think about a moral code and write it out. I, especially my narcissistic clients because they're so much on automatic pilot that it doesn't occur to them, you know, what that they're running on a moral code already, but they've just never specified it. My feelings are more important than your feelings. If you hurt me, I get to pull you out. If if I hurt you, you are probably wrong and oversensitive. The other thing to consider is, an adult, your happiness pie chart, not what makes my mother happy, not what makes my father happy, not what would please them, but what really honestly makes me happy and what makes me unhappy and am I only pretending to like. I had one woman, she pretended to like to read the New York Times, and her deepest wish was to sound very intellectual. And she thought that if she can remember the names and the schools and the, the citations on the front page of the New York Times, then she would have her wish. But really, when I spoke with her, she was totally disinterested in those stories. She really liked to cook, and she liked the style section. And so she was always at odds with herself, because her happiness pie chart would be She didn't want to read the New York Times. And I don't want to have to even compete in that. You know, if she really was honest, she'd say, I wish that people wouldn't be so competitive about intellectual stuff because I don't feel like I I really am drawn to that. That would be the truth.
1: I think having that, like you've, I mean, you said to me and also like you're saying now, having a true honest look of what really makes you happy, not what do you think makes a good person happy. Right, and it well. sometimes is hard to say. It's a hard and thing to admit out loud. To say like, yes, validation does make me feel happy, and that is going to be a piece of that. And obviously, there's other pieces to it. But I think that sometimes that it's a hard thing to. I mean, most people don't need to admit it out loud on a podcast of some kind. <laughs> um, And so, but to, to be honest with yourself is a really hard thing, and. You know, you mentioned earlier, like how would talking about personality traits being on a nutrition podcast, I think it's Judy and I do this quite often and dig into this because so much of our struggles with food has resulted in something. I think so many people's way of coping with personalities or trauma or people in their lives that hurt them is through food. It's why I was obese. It's why Judy had a eating disorder, like things that we talk about openly and people end up in these situations where food is a coping mechanism for their interactions with other people, their trauma, their hurt. And it's such a thing. And it's I think it's why we tend to bring it up on this platform uh, as much as we do, because it is a big part of it. It's a lot of my issues with food and being able to lose weight is now addressing things from a relationship standpoint. If I get into an argument, it's not going to the cabinet and binging on food. It's how do I knowing a diagnosis maybe helps me cope with that more digging into the understanding of where things come from helps me more. How do I learn to have genuine relationships with people and not binge on junk food, you know, as a way of coping with something that's hurtful. And so um, So you have on your pie chart, you have a piece of
2: the pie that says coping with things that are hurtful. mm. You can fill that in with food. Yeah, you can fill that in with spending. You can fill that in with meditating. You can fill that in with calling a friend for reassurance. Do you see how it's a part of the pie chart? We all have to cope with hurtful things occasionally. We, it might not be such a big part of our life that it's on our pie chart you know what i was yeah. thinking about when you when i was thinking about your pie chart and how often validation came up is sometimes when we draw a pie chart we realize we're we're keeping all our happiness dependent on only two or three things mm-hmm. why we could have 10 things we could spread it around so that if we don't get validation we can't get validation every day the way that we want if validation becomes like 30% of your pie chart or 50% of your pie chart, maybe it could be split up into other things. And it would balance it that would also make you feel happy and a decent human being that yeah. wouldn't necessarily involve validation. Like I feel happy when I'm able to help somebody, whether they I get validation for it or not, it makes me happy. I play some happiness games of I get happy. One of the reasons for, for liking more people is this more opportunities to be happy. Hmm. I realized that most of my day is spent um, in small transactions when it's not COVID. Like I will be talking to the cashier at a public supermarket, or I might be picking up my clothes from a dry cleaners. And I realized that I could turn them into, win. I could play a win-win game. The win-win game is how do I have a conversation with this person, however brief, that makes us both feel good? That's honest. You know, that's not idle flattery. That's my win-win game. I need um, something in my pie chart about helping other people and making other people. I would feel bad if I was the only happy. Now, this is not true of narcissists. If I was the only person happy in the room, a narcissist wouldn't mind. A psychopath wouldn't care. I care. So I know that I can't, I'm not totally any of those things because I want other people to be as happy as me. You want a, you want a quickie diagnosis thing, and I'll leave you with this. With my book, Borderline Narcissist and Schizoid Adaptations, this, the subtitle is The Pursuit of Love, Admiration, or Safety. Because I realized that I could get a really, there's two things that I could get a really quickie read on somebody from, Okay. And if I wanted to make it into a diagnosis, it could be the preliminary. If I had to choose interpersonally what I needed the most in the order that I needed it, would it be from another person? Is it love I want? And under love, I put all the stuff that I mentioned with the borderline. Love, nurturing. Is it admiration, like the narcissist? Validation, admiration, respect, status? Or is it do I do that do, do I need them to respect me, to admire me, to idealize me? Or if I'm schizoid or more toward the schizoid end, I need safety. Now we all need all three, but if you're schizoid, you need safety first. You have to feel safe with the person before you can become at all intimate. If you're at all borderline, you're looking for love. You want everybody to love you. The borderline theme song. The happier borderline thing song as as is the Backstreet Boys singing, I don't care who you are as long as you love me. Do you know that song? Yes. Where you're from, what you've done. As That's long a- as you love
1: me. <laughs> you
2: can see that? Whereas the narcissist is Frank Sinatra singing my way.
1: Yeah,
2: as you know, he's displaying himself for admiration, and minimizing all of the little things that he didn't do his way. And the schizoid loves songs "I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island doesn't cry" by Paul Simon. Think about it. What would you have first: love, admiration, or safety? What order would you put these three things in? Do it well, in What do hand. you
0: What do you define as safety? Like a, a- safety is is what however
2: you. However you define it. But for for my schizoid clients, it's the ability to not be trapped in the relationship by you, the ability to have my own thoughts, to not be told about me. Like when you talked about them diagnosing you and checking the boxes, if I was schizoid, We all have traits from all of these. See, all these diagnoses, the reason that people keep thinking, oh, I'm that, I'm this, is because they're all normal traits. They're all found in normal humans, but they're found much more rigidly, repetitively, and whether they fit the situation or not, they become a personality disorder. Do you see? Yeah. So it's not that they're doing abnormal things. They're just doing more of these things and in a less narrow range. So if they're going for validation, nothing but validation matters. If they're going for love, nothing but love matters. You can validate me. If I'm borderline; alone, you can validate me from head to toe. But I, unless I feel loved, I'm going to be walking around looking for love all day. And safety would be intrusion Now, here's a, I'm not schizoid, but I really do not like to be told what I'm thinking and feeling by somebody else or what I should do about what I'm thinking or feeling. Mm. That's very schizoid. So I was taught when I was dealing with schizoid by Ralph Klein of the Masterson Institute to label everything as my thought. To never, the narcissists love it if you're on the same page with them and can read their mind. And you think the thought and they don't even have to say it. My schizoid client, that's their nightmare. Horrifying. They want to keep the people out. Whatever you say, in fact, some of them will tell me it's not quite right. Like I could never be quite right because if I were quite right, we would have a meeting and the meeting would be intimate and the intimacy would trigger them for when they were a child, things weren't safe. So they never quite meet you. So safety would be the capacity to feel safe with another person that they're not going to intrude. They're not going to try and take what's mine. They're not going to take credit for what's mine. I'm not going to say your show is my show. I'm going to be respectful. They're going to be They're going to allow me to keep a comfortable distance. They're not going to keep approaching if I put up my hand. They're going to let me go when I want to leave.
0: Do you think based on, for me, I'll just say it. I think safety seems like based on everything you said, and it makes sense. So my husband, one of the things I love most about him is he lets me just have my space if I need it. Whereas my other boyfriends in the past were like, I feel like you never need me. And and one of them said, you're like this free bird. And I try to cage you and I can't do it. And I just remember thinking, what? You know, and so based on all of the things you said, it kind of makes sense. I love that my husband, if I need to work on something or he's like, Yeah, no issues, like I can take care of the kids at that time. And we have that, and I think he's kind of like me as well, where we both don't want to get bogged down by each other. And so we have that mutual respect and we, oh, you need the space, go, go ahead. I'll I'll take care of the kids. And and so for me, it would be. I guess safety, love, and then admiration. Um, And the only reason I know that admiration is now last is because of my whole eating disorder and having to go through that. Right. So in my 30s, I thought my goal was I wanted to be the thinnest. I wanted to own my own place. I wanted to make a six-figure. And I reached all of that. And I was more depressed than ever in my life. And that's when I realized, okay, those things actually don't really matter to my personal happiness. And I did a lot of that soul searching then. But I think what makes me thrive now is that order. Um, And so, then would understanding that priority then help me to define that happiness pie chart? Good, good.
1: Okay. And do you care to share yours, Laura, or would you have to keep to yourself? You know, I don't even know. I, 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 I'm I, an open book, but I don't even know if I could do that. I think I have to think about it more myself and, and to get a true, honest picture um, of where that would land. And uh, maybe it's something that Judy and I will have to talk about uh, at another time too. But I think There there is an element I live my life, I think, waiting for somebody to walk away because they're unhappy. And I spent a very long time with that. So I do I think in a lot of ways, safety is is definitely up there Um, and knowing that no matter how terrible I might act in the moment or what we go through or what's going to happen like that, my husband is here and supports me and, and, and gives me that because I saw that. My father walk out, you know, on on his family that's for abandonment. Correct, and so I do struggle a lot. I need the safety because I have a fear of abandonment for sure, and I <laughs> dealt with that for a very long time.
2: That's more on the borderline end. The borderline version is: you love me, and you won't abandon me. You won't mm. me. I am lovable. So that's an abandonment phenomena, rather than okay um, safety. This the, quite this what I mean by safety. See, there's all different ways. Okay. Uh, you both asked very good questions. What do you mean by safe? What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, this? Because we can redefine all of these. Um, you you want to know if, you, if you're borderline? If you're borderliney and you're female, you're going to attract schizoid guides. I'm, I'm borderliney because I'm bubbly, warm, and curly hair they find uh, less intimidating than straight hair and um so i tend to attract these guys because i'm warm and emotional
1: but i'm not quite as emotional as a borderline i think i have a lot more questions to ask about myself and understanding what you're talking about to be able to answer that accurately and i think that it's two very powerful exercises that you brought up that i would encourage us i'm going to go through them myself um and try to figure that out and i'm i'm sorry i interrupted you so if you can oh, share. sorry okay.
2: and the other thing that i thought of that Possibly be, and you may already be doing this. I had found as a therapist that what my clients' food urges were about would often give me an idea of what they were feeling. And for example, if people told me, like my client who who was so hungry for sweetness that she was just it was hooked on candy, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a weight thing. She didn't never lost weight. She never gained weight. She was one of these peppy cheerleader types. But she felt guilty about how much candy she had. But she was with a not-sweet guy. Then um, hostility, I uh, was chewy food, beef jerky, spare ribs, things that you crunch, pretzels. That's um, tension and hostility. Hmm. My clients who wanted mother nurturing liked the vanilla ice cream, the soft pastas, the creamy sauces. Does that make, is that mm-hmm. going forward with any of the things that you guys have noticed?
0: Yeah, I think uh, Laura and I talked about that on like our stress episode. I was saying that there was a thought, um, and I don't even know where I grabbed it from, but it's just when you're mad and you feel that tension and anxiety, you kind of want to stick to like chips and bacon and something crunchy and crispy because you're kind of mad. And then you know when you're comforting, you may want the ice cream or even like southern comfort food, right? So I absolutely think there's an emotional response with food, and and this is a hard work for, uh, and this is why we wanted to bring you on is. This emotional, this kind of digging within your soul and figuring out things, it, it's the hard stuff, right? But you have to nourish your body first with the right foods to even start doing this. Because if you're bogged down by processed foods and junk foods, your mind is already so um, in a fog that you don't have the energy or capacity to do these things that can then give you, I guess... Optimal wellness, right? Whether it's happiness, whether it's um, making sure you're in the right relationships for you and your family, and then and then we can raise good kids. But this is the part that's so hard. And I guess luckily for me, when I was sick earlier, um, I did this mental health side first. Now I'm sure I have a lot more that I can do. But it's, I think it's so important, but it's not as revered as let me just change my diet and it'll fix everything for me, right? But I think a lot of the mental health side. And I talk about it often that I have clients that do all the hard work with nutrition. They heal a lot of any imbalances, but then we figure out there's trauma from their past. I highly recommend everyone doing like extensive therapy because sometimes we have high stress bodies because we're dealing with stress internally and we don't even acknowledge it. And, and that's where, you know, I think therapy is so, so important. And our goal is really just for people to find I guess, being more comfortable in their skin, whatever that may be.
1: We want them to find long-term health and happiness. And it's more than just changing your food and your diet, which is what we talk about a lot. But I think that there's a lot of other work that has to be done. I think you've given some great tools and
0: exercises that potentially, um, that can make a big impact for people. Uh, One question I wanted to ask um, before we kind of wrap up is about gaslighting. I see it all over social media. What is the, I guess, Clinical definition of gaslighting is it do all the personality disorders kind of have that? Uh, What is gaslighting?
2: No, but gaslighting really was something done by narcissists and psychopaths. It comes from a play. The original play is set in the time when we had gaslights, we didn't have electricity yet. And this man married this woman because she was an heiress. She was inheriting a house from her aunt, and he knew that there was hidden treasure in that house. So he marries her. He claims to be in love with her, but he has someone else on the side, I believe. Okay. And it got, into, it got into, made into two movies. And why it's called gaslighting is he's searching the, when he searches the attic for this treasure, the gaslights in the house start flickering. When his wife tells him, honey, did you see the lights flickering? He tries to make her feel crazy. There weren't any lights flickering. What are you talking about? He gets the idea that if he can drive her crazy, get her um, into a mental institution by thinking that she can't trust her own perceptions, then he will have more freedom over her money and searching the house. So he's trying to get her to think she's crazy. So she has a brooch and he hides the brooch and she says, have you seen my brooch? And he said, no, no, what brooch? You don't have a brooch, you know, and so forth. So he keeps whatever her gaslighting refers to making someone doubt their own perceptions of reality when you know that their perceptions are accurate, but you've set out to get them to mistrust themselves so that you can have more power over them. That's gaslighting. Uh, in the culture that we're talking about, it's narcissistic slang for denying that something that's really going on is going on. Okay.
0: No, that makes that makes sense. Uh, it's just... I mean it's no different than lying right but it's lying plus making the other person kind of feel like they're crazy.
2: That's right. So it 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 requires a lack of empathy because if you have emotional empathy you can't really be comfortable making another person feel so unhappy and crazy. So you can see where yes. these other where these other things start to move in it's not that the lack of empathy on its own is bad but having a lack of empathy can lead you into other byways that Can lead you into bad places. Can make it easier to do things to other people. Having a lack—if you don't have whole object relations
0: and you don't have empathy,
2: then it's a lot easier to be bad.
0: That makes sense. There's no, yeah, moral compass, I guess, or emotional moral (laughs) compass. So,
1: well, thank you for for spending time and picking our picking us apart a little bit. That's what I was hoping to. I appreciated it very much. The insight, and I think it gives gives me some work to do to kind of really sit down and see, I relate so much to that. Like food brings you the happiness. I say all the time, like since giving up emotional eating, I've had to find a hobby and I'm still looking for like, what is that and how do I replace those feelings? And so I think those are so relatable to a lot of our audience, things that we're all really struggling with. And I think that as we all look for this long-term health and happiness, um, what you share today is a big part of it. And I think a lot of us have some work to do to find them. Do you do
0: one-on-one consults for the people that are listening?
2: I do do one-on-one consults. Okay, okay. I'm often full, and it. Um, I certainly consult on narcissism. I I consult on both the diagnosis. I consult on if people are married to somebody. I consult on if they're afraid if it's themselves. I consult on what do you do about it. One of the things that I've done, and I'm very, very pleased and proud of this, is I've written the first self-help articles for narcissists. I have lots of articles on my understanding narcissism for what it's like to be abused by a narcissist, for trauma bonding to a narcissist, whether you break up with a narcissist, how do you break up with a narcissist? But people were always complaining about narcissists and nobody was helping them. So I work with very motivated, self-aware people who have come to a part in their life where something's going wrong for them that matters. They're going to lose their family. They're willing to own their narcissism and look at it, and they're in therapy. So I wrote these articles that anybody can take off um, my website on how to get – one is how to get whole object relations as an adult – Hmm. Another is what to do with your narcissistic rage or how to deal with narcissistic rage and so forth. So people who have these issues, I'm very big about theory is not enough. We have to give practical instruction that normal people can take. Yes. You can make a happiness pie chart. It's graspable. If four things on your happiness pie chart all involve food, you're in trouble. <laughs> right. Right right? Yes. Yes. They all involve violence. You're in trouble. So you you don't want anything to creep in. So this is really what it's about. Practical everyday
1: solutions to these things that sound like fancy problems. Where else? Give us your book one more time and, and other resources where they could read more about your work or about this type of thing that we've been talking about today.
2: Okay. Well, I'll give a few resources. My book is Borderline narcissistic, and schizoid adaptations, colon, the pursuit of love, admiration, and safety. And now you know why those words. Yes. It's in German. It's uh, Borderline und Narzissmus by Cosell and hardcover and Kindle. Now, I write for free for Quora.com, and I answer questions, mostly on personality disorders, and I have a space there called Bits of Wisdom in which I include other people's writing that's in line with what I feel is accurate and not overblown and too traumatic on personality disorders and mental health issues and logic. I write Understanding Narcissism, a free blog for Psychology Today online. I am on the faculty and a full member of the New York Institute for Gestalt Therapy. That's the New York Institute for Gestalt Therapy. And there is a free program on Zoom we do, free, we, we do free educational programs on gestalt therapy that anyone can join. And there's one a month. And so if you go to the New York Institute for Gestalt Therapy website, you can find the current thing and you can sign up for a, for a free Zoom thing on something. I'm also on the faculty of the Gestalt Center for Psychotherapy and Training. This month, I will be teaching at a Zoom conference in Sarajevo. And I have something scheduled for about each month. I I'll go around the world because I'm very, I think that people will, just as people are happier since Eating disorders have become a known thing, and people realize they're not alone. They're not suffering with these wishes and these, these, these things themselves. I think the more that people can be exposed to that, this is really very common to have some form of personality disorder, to have some difficulty with whole object relations or object constancy, and that it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you were a, uh, you're going to ruin your life or anyone else's. But it's something to think about because it may be interfering with you being as happy as possible. So my goal in being on all these different sites and giving interviews is making this information available, but also giving people a practical tool like the happiness pie chart. I I was thinking when you were talking about the food stuff that some people might be taking up half of the chart with food. Food might be their way of validating themselves. Good job, Eat. Food might be the way of soothing themselves. Food might be their creative act. They cook very creatively, so they might be they might want to take what I did when I was when I was working with my own eating was I said okay I know how I want to feel from the food. What else can I do that will give me that feeling that is not food? So yes. if it's crunchy. I could learn knife throwing. I could throw an axe. There's a lot of things you can do if you have ho- repressed hostility. If you want soothing, you can get a massage. You can take a bath. There's, uh, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. You can put down the food category into what function is it for? Am I using it for in my happiness pie chart? And then some of those functions, you might want to just have food be
0: food and an occasional treat, and you might find want to find substitutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. no, that's really good. Um, I think I. It's just getting people to even think about everything that's going in inward. um, And that's the hard part. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me on and for spending so much time. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura Eastbath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura Eastbath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Spath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain.